Revelation chapter 4, verses, uh, beginning of verse 1, going all the way through chapter 5 to verse 4. We're going to do something strange this morning, uh, and um, maybe a little bit uncomfortable for you, but that's okay. In Revelation 4 and 5, you might not be aware, but uh, not only is John seeing things, he's, he's hearing certain things. And in this chapter, there are at least four different voices uh, that, that John reads that he hears and he records. So what we have this morning is we have four sections of the congregation I'm going to read this as the narrator of chapter 4 and 5, but each of you is going to read a part. And so beginning over here on my far right side, you guys are going to be the the voice of the trumpet in verse 1 that says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So when we get there, only you are going to read that part, okay? Uh, You all right here, you're going to be the voice of the the mighty creatures uh, in, I believe it's in verse 8. In verse 8, yes, who say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When we get there, you are verse 8. When we get to verse 11, you are verse 11. You're the voice of the 24 elders. And then when we get to chapter 5, verse 1, you guys are the voice of the strong angel, okay? It's going to make sense as the sermon goes on, uh, but this morning you're going to hear the four voices kind of that John hears, not in the same way, but you get the idea, all right? So we're going to read this. I'll begin. Don't miss your part. Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say... Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying... Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is 
And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Please be seated and join me in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this vision this morning that you have given to your son, Jesus Christ, to be delivered to your apostle, John, that it might be recorded first for the churches in Asia and then for us, the church. And so we ask this morning, our Lord and our God, as we look together at your word, that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you say to the churches. May we, Lord God, get a clearer vision of you. May we be so moved to worship and glorify you. May we see our own need and dependence upon you. And may we grow as you work among us to be more and more like our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name we ask all of this. Amen. This morning, as we begin looking at Revelation uh, chapters 4 and 5, we open this most beautiful, awesome, and amazing vision that John has. This sort of stands out in all of the the vision of the book of Revelation as an awe-inspiring moment uh, that leads into the rest of this book. You see, John, as we open chapter 4, says that a door is opened into heaven, and it's as if God brings John into the innermost holy place in the heaven of heavens. And there, as John enters in, he sees the throne of the living God, and God himself seated on the throne, and he begins to see what is at the center of all the universe. There the living God is. And so this morning, as we look at this passage, let me just say to you, this is an important vision. It's actually the, the, the pivotal vision of all of this book. If you don't understand what's happening in the throne room in Revelation 4 and 5, it is likely you won't understand the rest of this book, okay? Because everything that flows in the next 18 chapters flows out of the throne room, all right, directly flows out of it. So as we talk about the seals and we talk about the trumpets and we talk about the bowls and the tribulation and the judgment, all of that is coming out of the throne room, okay? And so all of it is directly connected. All of it has as its purpose and its meaning and its derivative. It's all coming out of Revelation 4 and 5. So it's incumbent upon us to understand what's happening in these two chapters if we're to understand the rest of the book. Uh, what's more, if we're to understand what's happening in Revelation 4 and 5 and the rest of the book, we have to get ourselves back into sort of the mindset of the people to whom this letter is written, okay? So we spent the last three weeks talking about these seven churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor. We, we talked about in the first weeks we, Ephesus and Smyrna, and then we moved on into the other chapters and uh, the other churches, and Tony and Chris uh, did a great job of relating to you what was happening in those, those cities and in those churches over the last three weeks, Okay? So this morning, we have to get ourselves back into the shoes of those first century Christians in Asia Minor if we're really going to understand what God is saying to the church, okay? We have to find ourselves understanding who they were, what was going on in their situation, if we're going to understand what God is saying to them, beginning in this vision in Revelation chapter 4, 
Okay, so let's, let's do that. Let's get ourselves. Let's summarize everything we've heard the last three weeks so that we're, we can kind of prepare ourselves to understand this passage. These churches in Asia Minor, you heard it the last three weeks, these churches are re- relatively new churches, okay? They're maybe 20 years old at best. They're kind of like Mercy Presbyterian Church, all right? And uh, they had maybe heard the gospel from the Apostle Paul or one of his disciples. That's how they first heard of Jesus. And they came to believe in him, and they began to meet together as believers on the first day of the week. And a pastor came to them and began to pastor their congregation. For many of them, it was the Apostle John. We we mentioned that, I think, the first uh, week of this series. John was the pastor of some of these churches, and he came and went from Ephesus to pastor these congregations. And he shared with them the things that he had learned from the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? They had been receiving letters from the apostles, like Paul. Paul writes to them, and he, he circulates these letters, letters that are not only addressed to them, but that would have been given to the churches and then circulated among them. And so this church is growing in Asia Minor. Not only are they the first church in their, their city, but they are the first believers on the continent of Asia. Okay? And their children would have been the first children of believers on the continent of Asia. Now, I have to say to you this morning, as you think about the life of these believers in Asia Minor, I have to tell you that they have a lot that's going against them, okay? There's so much that we could talk about that's happening in the first century, especially on this continent, that would have been threatening the church sort of every day, a daily experience for the Christian church in Asia Minor. We, we talked about, a, a few weeks in a row, we talked about the relationship that the church had to the Jews, okay? The Jews, by this point in time, the 60s to the 80s AD, the, the, the Jews had grown sort of tired of the Christian church, right? They were, they were fed up with the Christian church. And so we won't so much focus on the Jewish response to the Christian church this morning as much as maybe we'll highlight the Roman response. So I want to frame the life of a first century Christian in Asia Minor as it pertains to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire. During this time period, again, 60 to 80 AD, there's one group of Roman Caesars that are now ruling over all of Rome. This is part of the Roman Empire, and they are known as the Flavian Dynasty, okay? That is Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian, three Caesars. And they're lumped together for a variety of reasons, but maybe the most prominent reason is that they're notorious for the re-implementation and the expansion of the imperial cult, okay? The imperial cult. That is the worship of Caesar. Now, I say they expanded the imperial cult because here's what was happening. Earlier Caesars, they said, listen, when Caesar dies, he becomes God. And after he dies, you worship him as God, right? But the Vespasian, uh, sorry, the, uh, the Flavian dynasty, these three emperors are well known because they begin to expand this by saying, no, not when we die, when we're alive. We are God, you worship us as God. And so they begin to institute in the Roman Empire this requirement that all Roman citizens worship the emperor. I want to give you two ways that you probably can see how this manifests itself on, in daily life and then connect that to the passage. First of all, In five of these seven cities, to which this letter is addressed, to those Christians in those cities, five of those seven cities, during this 20-year period, temples are built to the Caesars, okay? In Ephesus, there's two. Ephesus has two temples built to Domitian in the 80s AD, okay? And what would happen is these temples would be built in these cities, and the members of of these cities and the surrounding areas would be required to come and to pay homage and worship to Caesar. 
And now every day when they go to the market or they go to buy and exchange goods, they would be required to burn incense to Caesar before they'd be allowed to buy or to sell goods. And a few times a year, the city would be gathered and they would sing together hymns to Caesar and they would pray publicly to Caesar. They'd be required to pray in private to Caesar. And all of this with the penalty of death if, if they don't conform. So this is what's facing the Christians in Asia Minor. Another thing, I've got this handout for you, and I'm glad I've made a handout. I went to go grab the whiteboard this morning, and all the markers have been stolen. So you've got a handout in God's providence, uh, something to look at here. I've given you these, these pictures of these Roman coins. I was amazed. I knew about the imperial cult, but I was amazed at how much or to what lengths the Caesars, the Roman Caesars, went to enforce their own worship. Look at these coins. By the way, a coin in ancient Rome, a coin was not only a, a monetary, a way of exchanging monetary goods or of, of securing services, it was a way of communicating a message. So I'll give you an example. When Nero conquers Jerusalem, he prints a coin, and on the back of it, it has a, a Jewish man kneeling, and it says the Idumeans are uh, servants, okay? And so the Jews had these coins that reminded them every time they exchanged them that they were the servants of Rome, okay? So the message is being communicated. It's the propaganda that's being promoted in the empire. Look at these coins. First of all, the top two coins, okay? These are printed in 82 A.D., by Domitian, and if you look at them, you read the Latin around the edges, you'll see on both coins, uh, in the first coin on the left, it's the first word, and the second coin on the right, and in the middle there is the word div, right, or divi, or diviv. It's the, it's the Latin word for divine. Both of these coins say uh, Caesar, uh, Domitian, the emperor, the divine God, okay? And so there's the communication. Whenever you exchange the coin, you'll be reminded, Caesar's God, Caesar's God. He's your God. You worship him as God. Uh, you might find this interesting. Look at the coin on the left. Not only does it say Caesar's God, but you see what Caesar's doing? Yeah, he's, he's seated on the globe, and he's holding in his hands seven stars. Well, isn't that interesting, okay? The Revelation chapter 1, John sees Jesus standing among the lampstands, and there he is with the seven stars in his hand. Caesar says to the people in the Roman Empire, here I am. I'm Caesar, I am your God, and I'm the one who holds the seven stars. I'm the one who's seated upon the world. Look at the second set of coins there. Actually, this second set is, is the same coin front and back. Okay, not only as you read the outside of this, uh, the Latin writing on this, not only is Caesar claiming again to be God... But if you look at the picture on the right, there's Caesar. The shield is on the ground, which means he's the victor. He's, he has accomplished all of the military plans that he wanted to. But in his right hand, you see what he's holding? It's a thunderbolt. Okay? So here we have Jesus, or sorry, rather God the Father revealed in Scripture again and again. There's thunderbolts coming from his throne. And then we have a, a coin that's printed by Domitian the Caesar, and in his hand is the thunderbolt. Okay, so not only does he have thunderbolts coming from his throne, but he's the one who holds the thunderbolt. The third coin you see there, again, the Latin inscription. This is from 85 AD. The Latin inscription, if you read around the edges, you see it says imp, which is the emperor Caesar Domitian. You read around all the way to the end, and finally you see the last two letters on there are the letters PM, which stands for Pontifex Maximus. You know what that means? The great high priest. The great high priest. Caesar, God, emperor, your 
our great high priest, okay? Here's, here's what I'm trying to communicate to you. The historians who say, you look at these 20 years and these emperors, three emperors, they will take almost every name given to God in the scriptures and they will take it and they will make it their own, okay? You can find on the coins and in the writings and inscribed in the temples, you can find names like the Lord of Lords, God of Gods, Savior of the world, your great high priest, right? The great intercessor before you in heaven. Everything that is written of God in Scripture is ascribed to the Caesars in this 20-year period. And in case you haven't noticed it, what's happening in Asia Minor for these 20 years, at least, more than it's happening in Rome, more than it's happening in Jerusalem, happening here in these seven cities is that these Christians are being confronted every day having to have a reckoning with their own faith. Will they follow the Lord Jesus Christ or will they bow their knee to Caesar? And it's not as if they can follow Jesus kind of in the background, or kind of in a sort of hidden way. Every day they're having to reconcile. It is in their face. The world is calling them to counterfeit worship by threat of death, okay? And it's not only their death. You read the accounts of the Christians in Asia Minor, and if they refuse to bow the knee to Caesar, to burn incense to him, to pray publicly to him, not only were they being killed, but their family was being killed, okay? So for the Christian in Ephesus who receives the revelation of Jesus Christ, who sees God on his throne, every day he or she is having to reconcile with the fact, if I follow the Lord Jesus Christ, I do so at the risk of my family and my neighbors and my spouse and all of us, everything I love. This is what the church is facing, okay? So you see the first point in your bulletin, why do we need to see a vision of God on his throne? It's very obvious why they needed to see a vision of God on his throne. They needed to see this vision every day. They needed each morning to wake up and to read of the living God on his throne who is indeed the living God, God of all gods, the great high priest, the intercessor on our behalf who controls all things. They needed to see that God was indeed in control of all the events that were transpiring in their lives even the suffering and the trials that they were about to face. Because the counterfeit gods around them were desperately trying to enforce their will upon their lives. Let me tell you something. Whether it be the 70s AD in Asia Minor or it be the modern day church today, this remains the same. Whether it be an emperor or the enticing things of this world, Satan is always working to try and steal what is rightfully the living God, okay? To steal his worship, and to steal his honor, and to steal his glory, and to steal the magnificence that is due to him, and to steal these things from the living God that is due him. As Satan is always working, whether it comes to the, the threats of the Roman Empire, the enticements of this world, he is always trying to draw the believers of the Lord God away from him. And so we need to see a vision of the Lord God seated on his throne. This is good for us to see, that we might be exhorted and encouraged to follow him and him alone, the true and living God. As we think about this revelation of God on his throne, this is a revelation for us. Now let's talk about what this, what this revelation means, okay? If you see on your handout, again, I've, I've put it, I think, on the back side. On the back side, I've given you this chart of comparison. 
This is not the first time in Scripture that we have seen a, we've been given a glimpse into the throne room of God. It happens to Ezekiel in chapter 1, Isaiah in chapter 6, we just read that passage, and it happens to Daniel in chapter 7. Each of them, the heavens are opened up, and they see God on his throne, and they see a, a very similar vision to the one that we've seen this morning. We're going to see some things to compare and contrast, but largely the, the vision is the same, Okay. And so they see God there seated on the throne. Now, if we had the time, we would go through and we talk about what are all the, the things that are the same and what are the things that are different and what does that mean and how do these all kind of work together? And I would encourage you to go home and to do that on your own, okay? Go back and read Ezekiel chapter 1 and Isaiah 6 and, and Daniel 7, and you'll, you'll see how these things work together. But, but what we see this morning as Revelation 4 is opened up and in those other passages, we, we see a, we're given a vision by the Lord Jesus Christ, and this isn't a particular moment in time. It's not as if John is seeing it. He's like, well, look at what God is doing right now. But rather, it's a, it's a picture of what is always happening, okay? So John is given a vision into the throne room of God. We are taken to the center of the universe where everything that happens, where it finds its meaning and purpose and, and it is all happening because of this, we're taken to the very throne of God and, and, and Jesus says, look, here's a picture into what is always happening. This is the reality in all the world for all time. This is simply what is true. It's kind of what's behind everything that you see in this world. It's what's giving everything purpose and meaning, okay? And so we see this vision into the throne room of God. Now, I want to talk about, I was going to draw this picture, but I just want you to envision what John is seeing here and see if you can kind of get a, get a picture for what he is seeing in this vision and what he's describing to us. He says, as we open up the first verse, he says that the, a door was opened into heaven. And what is the first thing he sees? He sees the throne of God. Okay, so there in his vision is a throne, and in the vision, it's the most prominent thing of all this vision, the throne, all right? The, the throne is mentioned more than 60 times in the book of Revelation, okay? It's mentioned more than the word heaven, one of the most prominent words in, in the book of Revelation, okay? What that means to us is that this is a book about God's throne, right? If you want to understand Revelation rightly, understand it from the perspective of the throne of God. The vision opens, the door is opened, and there is the throne, all right? John sees the throne, and as he talks about it, he's describing the one who's seated on the throne, but we don't get a really good picture of, of what God looks like on the throne, and I think that's for very important reasons, but he does describe to us some of his characteristics. He said that he was like jasper or carnelian, which are two fine gems, and they have a, a, a beauty and a magnificence about them, and then he says that the throne and the one who was seated on it was wrapped in a rainbow. In uh, Ezekiel's vision, Ezekiel has a funny way of saying it. Ezekiel says that he saw him and he had the appearance of Jasper and then he says he was wrapped in a bow like the one that appears after the rain, right? And so that's the, it's kind of an eloquent way of saying that he's wrapped in the rainbow. And so here is the one seated on the throne. Obviously his magnificence and his beauty and his power are being communicated. And then as the vision continues, what else does John see? He says around that one great throne, he saw 24 other thrones and they're smaller thrones, but they're around the great throne of God. And he doesn't tell you at first what, who's seated on the throne. We get to that on those 24 thrones. But he, he does describe them being around the throne of God. And then before the throne, what does he say? There is a sea of glass or of crystal before the throne of God. It's the same, it's the same vision that happens in Ezekiel. Ezekiel says, I saw the throne, and there before the throne was a, a sea of glass like crystal, right? And we're not going to get too much into the sea of glass and crystal, but it's this picture of God who has authority over all of this, this great expanse, this wonderful wide expanse that God sits over and he governs 
And we could talk more about that as the book goes on. But after the sea of glass, what does he see? He sees seated on the 24 thrones, 24 elders, okay? Now, the elders in, in the book of Revelation, I, I believe, and I, this is maybe debated a little bit, I believe the 24 elders are a depiction of both the Old Testament and New Testament believers, okay? Uh, 12, the perfect number, 24 is a, a duplication of that. So I think Old Testament and New Testament believers, I think at the very least they are certainly the saints of God because there are a number of times where they, as they speak about the Lamb, they say, Here, here's the Lamb of God uh, who has redeemed us who has taken away our sin, who has covered over our transgressions, right? And so that's, who has, that has to be people who have trusted the Lord God by faith, okay? So we have 24 elders seated upon their thrones around the living God, and what do we know about them? Two things, they're wearing white robes, right, linen gowns, and they have on their heads golden crowns, each of them. Well, doesn't that make sense? Because it says in Revelation chapter one that the Lamb of God makes his people to be both kings and priests. Right? That's a beautiful picture. So there are the elders seated on the thrones. And, and they actually appear in other places as well. In the passage in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel says that he sees the throne, and then around the throne he sees these beings, and he says they were seated in their court, a court of judgment. Right? It's a depiction of those who are ruling together with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, he has made us kings and priests. After the description of those who are seated on the 24 thrones is the description of the four living creatures, right? And you saw them. One, one they, they kind of have a body, but each of them has a different face. One has an ox, and one has a man, and one has like an eagle, and the other is a, I'm forgetting the last creature, it's a lion, lion, right? Each of them has a face like that, and they have six wings. And so you can begin to use the contextual clues to, to understand exactly what's happening here. You go back and look at Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel. Those creatures appear in all of those visions, and they have six wings, and we're told in Isaiah that they're the cherubim and the seraphim, okay? The great angels of God who wait on him day and night, and here they are. You remember from uh, Daniel's passage, and I think in Isaiah's passage, you remember what the, they're doing with their wings? We read it this morning, I think. One set of wings is covering their feet. They're in the presence of the living God. So they're, they're not even their feet can come into, uh, to, to near him, to proximity to him. And one set of wings, they're covering their faces because they can't even look upon the living God. And with the other set of wings, they're, they're in flight, okay? They're, they're hovering at the throne waiting on the Lord God. And so the four living creatures are described there. And then from the description of the living creatures, we get a description of the activity that's happening in heaven, right? The worship of God that the creatures and the elders are constantly giving to him. It's a beautiful, wonderful picture. And as I said this morning, what we're seeing is we're seeing and we're peering into the, the inner temple and the heavenly of heavenlies where God sits on his throne and we're seeing what is true of reality for all time, that God is seated that he is the great God who issues these decrees from his throne and they are executed by those who wait on him day and night, giving him ceaseless worship. It's a, it's a beautiful, wonderful picture that God gives to John in Revelation chapter four, that we see God at the center of the universe. And let me begin by saying, I think we as the Christian church need a better biblical view of God on his throne. We need a, a better biblical view of God on his throne. We need a better biblical view of, of God's sustenance and his power. What do I mean by that? Well, think about this. 
You go back and you look at the other visions of Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah, and each time they describe the, the cherubim and the seraphim that wait on God, and they say that they have these wheels. You remember the wheels? Wheels don't come out in Revelation 4, but they have these wheels, and Ezekiel says that they're the wheels that the seraphim and the cherubim have that were taking them to and fro, and they're carrying the throne of the Lord God, but they're also executing his decrees. And what we see in Revelation 4 is that these, these four creatures, they're not stagnant. They're not there doing nothing. Not only are they worshiping the Lord God, but at every turn when something happens in Revelation, it is decreed from the throne and that it's carried out by the cherubim and the seraphim, Right? God decrees what happens, and then the cherubim and seraphim, these creatures, they go and they carry the bowls of wrath, or they, they, they bring the judgments of God, or they communicate with the angels who go and do the bidding of God. The picture in Revelation is a God who is seated on his throne and decrees whatsoever comes to pass, and the creatures, those who have been created by God, who wait on him day and night, are simply executing his decree. As I said, I think we need a better biblical vision of God's sustenance and power because here's the way we live. Honestly, we live as if all of life is just automatic processes, right? Scientific law. We wake up in the morning because our hearts are beating and our brain waves are going, right? We, uh, uh, new children are born because that's just the way science works. Rain comes from heaven because of gravity and condensation, right? That's how we view all of the world, a bunch of automatic processes. But what the Bible says is that all of that, from the least to the greatest, happens because of the sustaining power of the Lord God, that it's all because of Him. He decrees it, and it's executed. He, he says it, and then it's carried out, right? From the flowers that sprout up from the ground, the rain that comes from heaven, Right? The fact that new life is given, you think about, again, the reason we wake up in the morning is because the Lord God causes us to have life. And He rises us each morning that we might have new life each day. And if He, if he failed to do that, if He stopped doing that, that we would, at that very moment, we would have no life. That the heart would stop beating, the mind would stop thinking, and that all of it would be ended because we only live by the sustaining power of the Lord God. We need a better vision of that. God seated on his throne, ordaining whatsoever comes to pass. From the least to the greatest, it is all by the power of his hand. That would give us, I think, a whole new perspective on life, right? As I mentioned, the flowers. G.K. Chesterton talks about the flowers in his book, Orthodoxy. And he says the flowers, we think, oh, that's a marigold and how beautiful a marigold is. And that's just, you know, you plant the seeds and the marigold sprouts up. What if we looked at that as... Every seed that is planted on the ground wouldn't have life in God, unless God said, I want it to look like that today. I want it to grow like that today. I want it to have life. I want it to produce. I want it to spring forth. That's the picture that we see in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And one of the things I was going to do, you, you see in your handout, there are two quotes there. I was going to read from the Westminster Confession of Faith and B.B. Warfield. And last night when I was working the sermon, I thought, you know what, I'm not going to read either of those. Okay? But you have them, and they're good. So go home and read them. Instead, I want to read you this quote from Vern Poitras. Okay? So B.B. Warfield is more eloquent. Uh, Vern Poitras is more practical. And so I opted for the practical quote this morning. Okay? Here's what Vern says about this passage in Revelation 4. He, he says this, John's vision is a little like an experience of going to an airport control tower. 
At a busy airport, a casual observer looking out the windows may see only mass confusion. Planes, vehicles, and baggage are going every which way. What does it all mean? If, however, the observer is escorted up to the control tower, he sees the overall plan of the airport, he hears the crucial decisions that are being made, and the directives go out in order to keep all the pieces carefully choreographed to execute the plans of the controllers. Suddenly, the goings-on down below make sense. So it is with John. Through his vision, we are transported into the control tower for the entire universe. From this vantage point, through understanding the controller and his plans, things all fall into place. And even if they sometimes, uh, sometimes escape our comprehension, we know the one who does comprehend it all. His execution cannot and will not fail. I think it's a wonderful picture of this chapter. What, what's happening in this chapter? We, we, get a, we get to go to the control tower. We get to see the airport from the sky. We get to see those who are making the calls. We get to see that it is God on his throne deciding all things. And that's how everything that's happening on the ground fits into its perfect place. God is the determiner of all things. And a right understanding of the world must begin from a right understanding of the centrality of the throne of God. Listen, we are, we are so tempted not to live this way. We are so tempted. We are, we are so tempted in our daily lives to worry about all that is around us, to fear about tomorrow, to be consumed by the things of this world. We are so tempted to do that, and often our response is, well, God, show me yourself. Show me your will. Show me your power. Show me what you're doing in this moment. But you know what we really need? We need Revelation chapter 4. What's the answer to the questions about today and tomorrow and five and ten years from now? What's the answer to the, your sickness or your health or, or the, the trials that you face in your life? What's the, the answer to all of it? The answer is that God is seated on his throne. That he's reigning over all creation. That he has ordered whatsoever comes to pass. It is for his glory and for our good. And if that's all we know, that's all we need to know. Right? It's absolutely amazing, this vision that John gets from Jesus in Revelation chapter 4. You see what happens. Once we understand that, we begin to see all the rest of this passage in this book falls into place. What happens, what's the activity of the living creatures and of the elders of this book? Because what their response is to God on his throne is also what our response ought to be, right? They, they, they worship him. They worship him. Listen, you're the great and mighty creatures. Let's hear it again. Let's read it together. Great and mighty creatures. What does, God, what does the living creatures say? They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Good job, but next time you could be louder. You are great and mighty creatures, okay? Uh, the 24 elders, what do they say? Let's read it together. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You see what's happening in heaven? And how often is that happening? Is it like a once a week thing? You, you noticed, right, verse 8? It says, living creatures never cease, day and night, they never cease giving worship to God. And so it's a constant repetition, right? Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. And what about the elders? Well, it says, as often as the living creatures 
glorified God, they also did the same. So what does that mean? They're never ceasing, day and night. They're constantly giving praise to the Lord God Almighty. What is happening in heaven? All of the created beings who are in the proximity to God, who are able to see with their own eyes the living God, what does it cause them to do? It causes them to worship Him day and night. Without ceasing, the picture is beautiful. It says that the elders are constantly falling from their thrones and casting down their crowns before him, saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God. Part of the call of this passage is that the church on earth would join together with the heavenly creatures in worshiping the Lord God. But that's, that's part of what's happening here. This is an instructive passage. We are to read it and say, oh, that's what our disposition to the living God ought to be. That's what our lives ought to look like. That's the ideal, okay, that we ought to worship him without ceasing day and night, that it ought to be a constant exercise in our homes, paying homage and and worth and value to the living God who deserves our worship, that we should join with the heavenly chorus and the saints and the prophets of the old and the Christians of the New Testament, right, and the living creatures and the 24 elders, that we ought to join our voices on earth with those who are in heaven, glorifying the Lord God, saying, holy, holy is he who was and is and is to come. This is part of the call of this passage, okay? So as you see, you go down the handout. Uh, this, is, this is how this impacts me. This is what it means for us, right? And so in this passage, we are given a promise. We're given a beautiful truth. We're given some instruction and guidance on what it looks like to, to worship the living God who is worthy of our worship. But there's another thing, I think, another way that this throne room vision impacts us, and that's where I want to end this morning. If you were to go back and you were to read Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6 and Daniel chapter 7, you would find that every vision of the throne of God that is given to a prophet is a beautiful vision, and then it kind of goes into a really awkward place, okay? And let me tell you why I say that. In Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel sees God on his throne, and then God says, Ezekiel, I have a scroll for you. Take this scroll and eat it. Remember that? Take this scroll and eat it. And on it are written words of lamentation and woe. I am sending you now to bring words of judgment to the people, okay? And Ezekiel's like, oh, I've just seen God on his throne, but now I bring words of judgment to the people. So it's an awkward position for him to be in. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read it out loud this morning. Isaiah sees God on his throne, and it's a beautiful vision, and there is God seated in the cherubim, the seraphim. And what does Isaiah say? Woe is me. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I am from a a people of unclean lips. Woe is me, for I have seen the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And for Isaiah, the throne room vision, though beautiful, it's an awkward place to be. What happens in Daniel? Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees God seated on his throne, and the vision ends, and Daniel says, I was filled with anxiety and worry, right? This is his response to seeing God on the throne. And we get the same sort of thing this morning. It's slightly different yet similar, okay? The, the vision of God on his throne transitions us into chapter 5, and here's what happens beginning in chapter 5. Then I saw in the hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now listen, next week, this is a two-part sermon. Next week we go into chapter 5. 
We'll, we'll talk about the scroll, but I'm not going to leave you in suspense. You might be saying, what's the scroll in the right hand of God? The scroll that is in the right hand of God, as we look at the other passages and everything that we know from Scripture, the scroll that is in the right hand of God is literally the, the story of the rest of redemption, okay? Within this scroll that is sealed with seven seals, those seals will be broken and judgment will go out, but then we'll see also the promise, okay? Within this scroll is the name of those who will be judged and the names of those who will be saved, okay? The people of God and those who are against God and all of uh, uh, their outcome of what has been determined about their lives is, in, is contained in this scroll, okay? This scroll is the rest of history. I, I'll put it to you a different way. Maybe this makes more sense, okay? On this scroll is the new covenant, right? There's good biblical language. The old covenant, the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve was a covenant of works. And God said to them, perfect obedience, you will live forever. Great, we got an agreement, but sadly they failed. And now all who are born into sin are first born under the covenant of works, and they cannot live by that. And so now God, seated on his throne, he's got another covenant. It is the covenant of grace. And now he holds it in his hand as the one who's on the throne. This is his perfect decree. It is the plan of God for all the rest of history. And John sees it. And now what happens in verse 2? And I saw a strong angel. Okay, the strong angel, you're over here. You've got to be louder than the mighty creatures and louder than the 24 elders. So I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open this scroll and break its seals? I think the 24 elders were the loudest, but good job, okay? The strong angel proclaims in heaven, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And you have to imagine at this moment, John who's come through the door of heaven, who's standing before the throne of God, who sees the 24 elders and the great four creatures, John begins to look around heaven and he says, okay, well, who's worthy? Who's going to open the scroll? We got four mighty creatures before the throne. Will they open the scroll? 24 elders seated on their throne. In chapter 5, we're going to see myriads of myriads of angels. Okay, there's heavenly hosts there. Who is worthy to open the decree of God? Who has the power? Who has the might? Who has accomplished all that God has required to open the great new covenant to save the people of God? In verse 3, it says, No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or look into it. He's saying, no one there in my vision, no one there in the heavenly of heavenlies, no one here on this earth, no one under the earth. There's, there's no creature. I looked around, and there was no one able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly. That word means to wail. It's the word that's used, if you've ever seen a, a Middle Eastern funeral, when people are throwing themselves down and their bodies are convulsing. That's what the word means. Okay, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. What is John saying? No one in heaven or earth or under the earth has been found worthy to execute, to carry out, to bring to fruition the new covenant of God, to save a people for himself to judge the world and to redeem the elect. There is no one worthy to open the scroll. I don't know if you can imagine it, but this is a scroll, and the seals would have been like this vision of wax seals. And the, the person who owns the scroll takes his emblem, and he stamps it onto the seal. And what that meant was when the seal was stamped, the one who received it said, well, I see whose name on this. 
whose name is on this, does, am I able to open this? And they say, no, this letter's not for you. It's been written by this person. It's not for you. Until somebody would say, yes, this is my father. He has stamped this and it is sealed by his name and I'm worthy to break those, those, those seals, okay? Those are the seals that we're gonna see in the next chapter six and chapter seven. John says, no one is worthy to open the scroll of the new covenant of God, the agreement of redemption, of, of grace for his people. There's no one worthy to open it, okay? How does the throne of God impact us this morning? We see what it does. It does as it did to Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Daniel. It presents us with a stark contrast. For as holy and as worthy and as righteous and as good as he is who sits on the throne, the contrast is so are we unworthy and unrighteous and full of sin and incapable. And that contrast is nowhere made more stark and more clear than when we see no creature able to execute the new covenant of God. The plan of redemption. And so it puts us, at least for a moment, in the same position as Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel. Listen, this is all leading into next week. And so next week we're going to pick this up. But let me just say something. You know where this is going. The suspense that leads into chapter 5 is absolutely amazing. When the Lamb of God appears before the throne and he takes the scroll out of the hand of God. And then there's this rejoicing in heaven. You know where it's going. And we're going to talk about that next week. But let me just say something. If you don't know where this is going, if you've never heard this, come up afterwards. Let's talk about it. Because we're going to end there this morning. It's a two-part series, a two-part sermon. Next week we'll pick up in chapter 5. But if you don't know, if you're saying, don't leave me hanging. I don't know about this lamb. No one's told me. Come up afterwards. I want to talk about that. But I, I do want to leave most of you in suspense till next week. What's the answer? The scrolls in the right hand of God. How will that plan of redemption be executed? How will it be carried out? Think about it. Read about it for next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning and we thank you. We thank you that you are seated on your throne. We thank you that you rule over heaven and earth. We thank you that there is nothing in all of creation and outside of creation, which is not under your authority. And that you, Lord God, oversee these things, not by permitting them and not by allowing them and not by having some general, some general uh, idea of what's going on, Lord God, but, but that you order and ordain everything that comes to pass. From the greatest to the least, that it is all part of your plan that now, because we are yours, we can rest in that plan. We thank you that you are our Father. You are our Savior, our Redeemer. You are the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the Savior of your people, the great Redeemer, the I Am. You are the authentic God in the face of all the counterfeits of this world. And so, Lord God, would you move us by your Spirit? Would you make us able and willing to join with the heavenly choir and to worship you who is worthy of all our honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.